that's you know that's one way of getting to know me. Um, uh, but perhaps I, I could introduce myself a little bit more fully. Um, I, I, I sometimes forget to mention a few things about myself when I'm in this interview stage. Um, so let me just come clean and uh, describe myself to you. I, I am the unique and eternal Son of God. Don't know if I mentioned that. Did I mention? That? I probably didn't mention that earlier. Uh, I am older than the universe. Um, uh, I, I was there before people or planets or protons. I, I was there with my Father, filled with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Uh, I made you. Uh, I have shown up on planet Earth to be uh, the very apparition of God to you. If you want to know what God looks like, just keep looking right here, okay? Um, why is that funny? Um, I am the judge of the world. Everybody must face me at the end of all things. Uh, and I and the Father are one, right? Uh, just just so that I can be clear about who I am. Is that, is that, is that a, a fuller introduction to me? I better stop before lightning strikes, Okay. Because uh, as I describe myself in those terms, you're probably thinking, nutter, right? Aren't you? You're thinking, should we section this guy? What's, what's going on? Is he having an episode? Is he in a good place? Has he got a blood sugar low? What's, what's going on? Um, and yet Jesus Christ made these claims uh, on every page of the Gospel, on every page of these biographies of Jesus. We've got one uh, biography of Jesus for you to take away with you, John's Gospel. On every page of this, Jesus makes claims like that. And what's stunning is, I, I go around and talk to people about Jesus, and people manage to have a mild opinion about Jesus, which I think is astonishing, really, given the things that he said. Because you were not having a mild opinion about me when I was saying those things, were you? You know, you were, you were probably thinking to yourself, Australians are even more arrogant than I, than I ever imagined. This is ridiculous, right? Um, and yet, I talk to people about Jesus, and they, they, they somehow manage to have a mild opinion of Jesus, uh, but Jesus won't let you do that. I often say to people, if, if they say, I love Jesus, he was such a good teacher. Well, I, I, I think to myself, if you think Jesus is just a good teacher, that only shows that you're not a good listener. Okay? Because listen to the things that he says. He says things like, well, in this book, uh, he has these great I am statements. And he, and he says things like, I am the one bread of life, without me you go hungry. I am the one light of the world, without me you're in darkness. I am the good shepherd, without me you're lost. I am the resurrection, without me you are perishing. I am the one way to God, I'm the one truth about reality, I'm the one life that is truly life. I am the one vine, and you need to be connected to me like a branch to the vine, or else you start to wither. Uh, these are all the ways that Jesus keeps on talking about himself, and how do you react to a man who makes those sorts of claims, I suggest not mildly. Uh, perhaps you know uh, C.S. Lewis, the, the author of the Narnia books, and uh, famously he came to Christ later in life. Uh, he was converted out of atheism and uh, became a Christian. Uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, Mr. Lord of the Rings, uh, was key in, uh, in actually Lewis's conversion. So they, they had a famous conversation on the uh, 12th of September, 1931, where J.R.R. Tolkien uh, started talking to, to C.S. Lewis about the great myths that both of them loved so well. And uh, Lewis said, of course I love all those great myths, but they are, just, they are just lies, even though they are breathed through silver. It's a great phrase, and you can tell he's a great writer. They are lies breathed through silver, all these great fairy tales, all these great myths. And Tolkien said, no, they are not lies. 
And what Tolkien meant by that is that in every story that is told, it's shaped like the grand story, the Easter story. Uh, Every story we ever tell about life sounds a little bit like Easter. You know, I I often do this with, uh, with children. I, uh, if I go into a school and I do a school assembly, I, uh, I tell the kids, okay, let's crowdsource a fairy tale. Should we crowdsource a fairy tale? And they think that's a ter- tremendous idea. So I say, I'll start you off, and then you tell me which way the adventure goes. <coughs> Choose your own adventure. So I say, in the beginning, there was a kingdom of light and life and love, and there was a good king, and there was a beautiful princess who was as wise as she was fair, and all the people were very happy. The end. Is that a good story? And the kids say, no, that's a terrible story. And so I say, okay, well, what should happen? Should something nice happen or should something difficult happen? And uh, sometimes the kids don't really tweak to how stories often operate. And so they'll, they'll sometimes say something nice should happen. You know, bless them. They, they think that's the way stories go. Uh, they'll learn. But, uh, so I have to invent something nice that happens. So I say, all right, so one day the king decides to have a jousting competition and all the great knights enter the jousting competition. And then there's this one poor farmer from the hills who everybody laughs at. And he enters the competition. And, uh, you know, the armor doesn't fit him. And he's a bit, bit of a gangly teenager. But somehow he wins the jousting competition. And the whole kingdom is, you know, celebrating. And the king says, I'm going to make you into a knight. And there's a feast that lasts for a month. Is that something good? And the kids say, yeah, that's something good. Okay, now... What should happen? Something nice or something nasty? And by this stage, everybody is bored of the nice things. Okay. And uh, the last time I did this, a kid from the back said, Something evil! Have something evil happen! I was like, okay, all right. So here's the nasty thing. Okay. From across the sea flies in a dragon. And he swoops in and he snatches the princess. And he carries her off across the sea and uh, to his lair. Now, what should happen at this stage? Should the king say, eh, easy come, easy go, you know, plenty more princesses where they came from, or should there be a rescue? And the kids say, oh, there should be a rescue. And I say, okay, well, who should, who should go and rescue the princess? And some bright spark says, what about that knight, you know, the, the farmer boy who became, what about him? Okay, what a good idea. Okay, so the knight gets into a boat, and he crosses the sea, and you say to the kids, should it be an easy crossing? Or should it be a difficult crossing? And the kids say, it should be a difficult crossing. And I say, okay, so what sort of monsters should he encounter in the sea? And they come up with all these sorts of monsters. There should be a triple-headed octopus and electric eels and radioactive sharks and all this. Okay, so he has to fight his way through the monsters. And he gets to the other side and he... You know, and, they, and they tell me the journey, and it has to be really, really difficult, apparently. He has to go through the, the haunted forest and climb the cliffs of insanity, and he gets there to the lair. And you say, you know, should the dragon just let the princess go, or should there be a fight? There should be a fight, right? And so there's a fight to the, de- to the death between the knights and the dragon, and somehow... The, the knight snatches victory from the jaws of, the, of, of defeat and he you know, throws the dragon into the cell that had held the princess and he saves the princess and he carries her back across the sea, back home to the king and everybody's very happy and then I say, and, and what should happen next? And somebody says, you know, they should get married. And I always say, only if she wants to. I mean, come on. I mean, she's gone through a big ordeal. She probably needs all sorts of counseling. There's post-traumatic stress disorder. She'll have complicated feelings about her captor. But, but okay, 
if she still wants to, they should get married, and they all live happily ever after. Is that a good story? And the kids think, that's a tremendous story, right? And then I say, well, isn't that every story, actually? Isn't every story basically that? That you start on high, there's some kind of fall, there's a hero who, through great struggle and suffering and sacrifice, somehow snatches victory from the jaws of defeat, and in the end, there's some kind of union of hearts and souls, and everybody lives happily ever after. Isn't, isn't that what all the fairy tales are like? This is what J.R. Tolkien was saying to C.S. Lewis. And Lewis said, yeah, I love those myths, I love those stories, but they're just lies breathed through silver. And Tolkien said, no, they are not lies. What does Tolkien mean, they're not lies? Does he mean that actually the dragon exists and the knight exists? That actually there are hobbits and orcs and Mordor and a ring of power? Does does Tolkien really believe that? And in a sense, I think J.R. Tolkien would say, yeah, I totally believe that. <laughs> you know? in, this, in this deeper sense that maybe we are living in a story. We're living in a story in which we have fallen from a great height. We're in a deep pit. But there has been a hero who's come to rescue us. And through great struggle and sacrifice and suffering, he's snatched victory from the jaws of defeat and he offers us the happily ever after. Yeah, it's true. The myth is true. There is one, that, one myth that really happened. And C.S. Lewis started, after that conversation, reading through the Gospels. And he was an expert in all the, the great mythology, the Anglo-Saxon, Norse, and Celtic myths, and also the, the Greek myths and the Roman uh, myths. And, and he started reading the Gospels, and he said, actually, even though this tells the story, it, it doesn't tell it in the mythological way. These bear all the hallmarks of history. When you read through John's Gospel, you'll see that Jesus goes from this named location to that named location, and he has an encounter with this named person, and it happened on that day, and then the next day this other thing happened. It's, it's written as historical reportage. It's not written as once upon a time in a land far, far away. This is the myth that really happened. And so C.S. Lewis actually joyfully came to see who Jesus was when he had that conversation with J.R.R. Tolkien. And you might know that uh, C.S. Lewis went on to, to write a, a very famous book about Christianity called Mere Christianity. And it's a, it's a great little introduction to what Christians believe. And he makes a point at one point in Mere Christianity. He says, when Jesus comes to planet Earth, he comes as the great hero. He is the great knight that has dived down into the pit to take on the dragon. And when he comes into our world, he makes extraordinary claims for himself, like I am the bread of life like I am the light of the world, like I am the good shepherd, like I am the resurrection and the life, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He makes all these magnificent claims about himself, and he keeps on saying to people, you want to know what God looks like? Keep looking at me. And C.S. Lewis said, if somebody says that, then they're either mad, or they're bad, or they're God. Right? It's, sort of, uh, it's, it's not a dilemma, it's a trilemma. Okay? There's, there's only three options you can take. If you make the sort of claims that Jesus makes, and you keep on making them, and you're serious about them, well, either you're mad, you're lying to yourself about the truth, and this is a pretty stunning lie to tell about yourself. You're, you're mad, you're lying to yourself. Or you're bad, you're just trying to lie to other people for some nefarious purpose. But if you're not lying to yourself, and you're not lying to others, I guess you're not lying, are you? 
you're telling the truth. And therefore, Jesus is who he says he is. And C.S. Lewis asks us to consider that truth, that if Jesus says he is the unique and eternal Son of God, that he is one with the Father, he is what God looks like on planet Earth, if he keeps on making that claim, what are you going to do with Jesus? You can either section him, or you can arrest him, or you can worship him. And Lewis did not see a fourth option. I don't know, maybe you've got a fourth option. In the Q&A time, you can come up with a fourth option. We can, we can bat that one around. But I think it's a compelling argument. And what I'm not trying to do is, I'm not trying to say, I'm not trying to back you into a corner. You know, to have your arm up behind your back until you say, all right, fine, Jesus is Lord, fine, right? I happen to think it would be the best news in the world if Jesus is what God is like. And if you start to read about Jesus, I think you'll come to that same conclusion. Um, It's not a bad thing to call Jesus God. It could actually be the most wonderful discovery in your life to realize that whatever else God is like, Jesus is what God is like. Because here is a God who is like that great knight who fought the battle against the great dragon just to save you. Here is the kind of God who comes and stoops and suffers and struggles and serves and fights for you and bleeds and dies for you and rises again to offer you a happily ever after. If that's what God's like, I'm in. How about you? Let's have a look at one of these sayings that Jesus says. It's a slap bang in the middle of these John's Gospels. And uh, as I've said before, these are a gift to you. If you don't have one of these, please do take this uh, away with you and keep on reading. We hope that this gives you a a flavor for it so that you can go on and uh, keep on enjoying it for yourself. On page 27, I'm just going to look at one sentence that Jesus said to introduce him to you. And it's right at the top of page 27. Here's Jesus teaching about himself. And as Jesus introduces himself, he, he, he does those two things that you're not meant to do in a party. You're not, you're not meant to be so boring in a party as to say, who are you and what do you do? Right? You're, never, you, you, you're meant to ask all sorts of really interesting questions, like, would you like hands for feet or feet for hands? Or you know, you, You're meant to come up with all these. But I don't think any of us are that interesting, are we? We, we tend to default to who are you and what you do. What do you do? That, that tends to be how we introduce ourselves. Well, this is a great verse, because who is Jesus? Well, he's going to tell us who he is and what he does. So top of page 27, little number 11 means it's verse 11 of chapter 10. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So two sentences answering two questions. Who are you, Jesus? I'm the good shepherd. Oh, that's interesting. What do you do, good shepherd? Oh, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I'm just going to spend the rest of the time thinking about those two answers. So the first answer, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Um, this is actually dynamite. Uh, if you were a Jew listening to Jesus, and if you'd been steeped in the Old Testament scriptures... Uh, this would have really packed a punch uh, because you would have perhaps memorized whole chunks of the Old Testament and you would have known the most famous psalm of all. Do you know, back in the Old Testament, there are these 150 psalms, these songs that were sung, and the most famous of them is Psalm 23. Uh, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Do you know that one? Um, it's, it's quite a famous uh, piece of scripture. It's, it's often used at uh, funerals and state occasions. 
Uh, actually, some friends of mine used it recently at, at a wedding, uh, which is an interesting choice for a wedding, I think, because it's the psalm that goes, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Which is, you know, interesting expectations about what marriage is going to be, going to be like, I think. Yeah. Quite realistic. <coughs> um, so they wanted the, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I need a good shepherd to take me through the valley of the shadow of death. And in the Old Testament, constantly, it is God who is the shepherd. God is the shepherd. And everybody, everybody who heard Jesus say this would realize that he is unmistakably, unmistakably, making, uh, unmistakably making a claim to divinity. I am the good shepherd. And you can see, uh, actually, if you go, let your eyes go down to verse 20, uh, people understood what Jesus was saying. He says, uh, it says, many of them said, he is demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? Okay? Just to claim that you are the good shepherd makes you... It's interesting that C.S. Lewis said, you're either mad or you're bad. Right? If you're not God, you're either demon-possessed, bad, or raving mad. Right? And that's the effect that Jesus had on his first century hearers when he claimed to be the good shepherd. I don't know if uh, anyone's ever claimed to be the son of God to you. Um... I've had two people uh, claim to me that they are the son of God, and uh, you might not be surprised to learn that it was on the mental health wing of, of a hospital, and they were not in a good place when they said that. Um, one of them is in a much better place now. He's a really good friend of mine now. He's called Mark, and uh, he happens to be having a psychotic episode, and he started to make claims to divinity, and he was claiming to be the son of God. And this is where I first met Mark, and um, uh, it's a funny story because he... He was claiming around the ward that he was the Son of God, and then one of the other patients came up to him and said, oh, I've been meaning to ask you a question for so many years now. Can you explain this verse in the Bible? <laughs> and my friend Mark said, I've never read the Bible. And the other guy said, call yourself the Son of God. You, you've never read the Bible. You should read the Bible. The Son of God should definitely have read the Bible. And Mark thought, yes, I probably should. And so he went back to his room and he found a Bible and he started reading. He started reading through the New Testament and uh, he said, I made the two most wonderful discoveries. He, he said, discovery number one, Jesus is the Son of God. Discovery number two, I'm not. <laughs> and it was absolutely key to his recovery. It was like, oh, can you, can you imagine just the, the, the burden lifting from you as you realize, I'm not the Son of God. Oh, thank God for that. <laughs> so, but this is, this is what happens when people make a claim to being the Son of God. They're usually not in a good place. We, we either think that they are demon-possessed or raving mad, and yet Jesus keeps on making those claims. So what do you think? Do you think Jesus is raving mad? Well, his teaching has absolutely built civilizations. It has founded the world that we live in. It has changed billions of lives. He is a first-rate moral philosopher. You know, and any... Any philosophy prof will tell you he is a first-rate moral philosopher. Do you think he's mad? Do you think he's raving mad? Or do you think he's bad? Well, here is a man, and, and I challenge you to have a look at his character as you read through the Gospels. Here, here's a man who bleeds his own heart's blood even for his enemies. I don't think he's bad. But if he's not mad, he's not bad. Maybe he is who he says he is. Maybe he is Lord. And I tell you, that's the best news in the world, because if he is what God is like, then all of a sudden we've, we've got a very attractive God, don't you think? The kind of God who would come and rescue us. So Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And before we go on to talk about what the good shepherd does, 
I wonder if you can notice something that's offensive here. Um, have you spotted something that's very offensive? Are you offended yet by Jesus' teaching? Perhaps, perhaps you should be. Perhaps you should be more offended than, the, than you currently are. He calls himself a good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. So he's the good shepherd. What are we? Sheep. Are you offended yet? You should be, right? Because sheep are morons, right? <laughs> Think of all the animals that Jesus could liken you to, okay? He could say, you're like soaring eagles, or you're like majestic lions, or even that you're like faithful dogs or something. Even that would be nice. But no, no, no such luck. You're sheep, right? And sheep are stupid. Really, really stupid. I was once giving a talk on, on this passage in my church, and uh, there was a guy who comes to our church, and, and he's a farmer, and uh, he runs hundreds of head of, of, of sheep uh, outside of Eastbourne. And, and, he, and he said to, to me after my sermon, he said, uh, actually, Glenn, you got it wrong. You, you said that sheep are morons. No, no, sheep are brilliant. Brilliant at discovering ways of killing themselves. He said, <laughs> when it comes to discovering ways of perishing out there, they are geniuses, sheep. Absolute geniuses. And he's told me all these different stories about, you know, sheep who... When they, just, when they get, get too wet, they're too heavy, they fall over, and they can't get up, and they just perish. <laughs> you know, they're just, they're just, and even if you come and find a lost sheep, you can't just go, come on, come on, Flossie, off home. You know, Flossie is not going to trot home behind you. You know, you have to lift up Flossie and carry this dumb creature home. Sheep are stupid. And Jesus is saying that you and I are spiritually stupid. Okay? Are you offended yet? <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> It's, it is an offensive thing to be likened to, isn't it? Um, now, he's not saying that you're stupid in every way. He's not saying that I'm stupid in every way. There are lots of ways that we are very intelligent, very capable people with high capacity, and we can go get them. Uh, but spiritually speaking, we are like sheep. We just follow after the latest thing. And why are we going in this direction? Well, because this person is. And why are they going in that direction? Well, because the other person is. Why are they going in that direction? Nobody has any idea. And then we follow the next thing, and the next thing, and the next thing. And I, I just look back at my life, and I think that's, that's what my life's been like, just following the latest fad, really. And remember at uh, university, we, we would compete with one another over, you know, who's had the, 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 the heaviest drinking and the, and, the, and the most blowouts, the greatest parties, the concerts that we've been to, and we would compete on, you know, I went to Glastonbury, I went to Vegas, you know, and, and we just kind of top each other on, on that sort of thing, and, and then at some point before our finals, <laughs> we sort of switched, and we started to, you know, remember that we were there to study, and we, and then we started, you know, I, I spent, you know, 10 hours in the library, I spent 12 hours in the library, I, I've pulled so many all-nighters this week, and, and suddenly we're going in that direction, and then you get into the world of work, and all my friends are starting to compete over, you know, I spent 60 hours in the office, 70 hours a week, 80 hours a week, you know, I wear a nappy to the office just to save on bathroom breaks, you know, it's just... and then you get into family life, and then you compete on something else, and then you talk about holidays, and, you... and you're just following after the latest thing, the latest thing, the latest thing, and do we know why we're chasing these things? So often we don't, so often we don't. And all the while, there's a good shepherd who's got real spiritual food for us that can really feed us. And all the while, we trust ourselves more than we trust the good shepherd. We think we know how to live our lives best. And actually, when you stop and think about it, why do you trust yourself 
to know what is best in your life? Why do you trust yourself? Because I'll just speak for myself. No one has sabotaged my own happiness better than I have. No one has sabotaged my own success in life better than I have. Why would I trust me? I'm a moron, right? I'm a sheep. I just follow after all the wrong things and I get stuck in my own ways, get lost in the darkness and I'm perishing. And I don't want to get stuck perishing, do I? The Bible says we all live forever. We all live forever. That's a claim that you might want to press into. But you don't want to get stuck forever in that lostness, in that perishing, do you? Well, you don't have to because the good shepherd has come, this great saviour. And so we ask Jesus, okay, good shepherd, we know who you are. What do you do? And Jesus answers our second question. Well, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And this is good news. This is good news for perishing sheep like you and I. Um, but it's, it's quite a funny image, don't you think? A good shepherd laying down his life for the sheep. I mean, this, this is like quite serious career commitment, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, how much does this shepherd value his sheep? If you were, if you were a friend of this shepherd, and he was, he was telling you, you know, I, I just want to save Flossie, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run and, you know step in the way of the wolf and get mauled to death for the sake of Flossie. Like, what would you tell your friend? You would say, no, no, no. Get a, get a, get a hobby, right? Like, get a sense of perspective. Get a girlfriend. What are you doing? Like, why are you dying for these smelly sheep? You know, a good shepherd shows up early and mends the fences. That's about the, the limit of what a good shepherd should do. What do you say to a shepherd who loves his sheep so much he'd rather give his life for them than see them perish? That's the picture that Jesus gives. And he gives us this picture because we are perishing. We are in the darkness. The Bible puts it like this. Jesus is the Son of the Father, full of the Holy Spirit. The Bible says that this fountain of light and life and love is where we've come from. But we are the ones who've followed our own path. And so we get lost in the darkness. Because if you wander away from the light, you get lost in the dark, don't you? If you wander away from love, you get lost in disconnection. If you wander away from life, you get lost in death and perishing. And that's, that's where we find ourselves. But then what does love do when he sees us lost in the darkness? Well, love says, I'm going to join you. I'm going to be with you. Love pays any price to be with the beloved, doesn't it? Love pays any price to be with the beloved. And so what Jesus does is he puts himself in our place, in our position. At the end of John's Gospel, you'll see Jesus with his arms wide open to the world. And he is in the darkness on that cross. Why is he there? Because well, that's where we found ourselves. So he came to find us, came to save us, came to love us to death. He is there in the darkness. He is experiencing that disconnection from God. He is experiencing that death in all its senses. Because this is what love does. Love lays down its life for the beloved. And that explains what would otherwise be a really puzzling verse, wouldn't it? Because here Jesus is basically saying, I'm God. And then everyone sort of says, okay, prove it, God. Prove that you're God. And I don't, I don't know what you think would be a good proof of divinity. You know, if, if maybe Jesus got a mountain to blow its top as a volcano or something, or if he 
got a donkey to tap dance and sing show tunes or something like like something spectacular, right? Wouldn't that be a good proof that Jesus is God? But essentially what we have in this verse is Jesus saying, I'm God. And people say, prove it. He says, all right, watch me die. Oh, that's an interesting proof. How is that? How is Jesus dying a proof of his deity? That's a really odd thing, don't you think? But if God is a fountain of life, as we've just said, if he's a fountain of life, then where do you see God at full strength? You see God at full strength when he is poured out for you. Where do you see that Jesus is divine? You see it when he dies for you. Is this a God you could believe in? Maybe you come this evening and, and you, you're not sure whether you believe in God or what God might be like. Well, now you've had a little look at the Jesus gods. The kind of God who comes to rescue. The kind of God who comes as a good shepherd and who takes on himself your death, your darkness, your disconnection. So that he can offer you his light, his life, and his love. Is this the God that you can believe in? Well, I just, I just really recommend that you uh, keep on reading this book and, and keep on asking the question, who is this Jesus? Is it possible that he is what God is like? And just shoot up a prayer and say, Jesus, if you're real, show me. Show me what you're like. We also run these things called uh, Word One-to-One. Uh, they're just basically a, a book club that you can get together with a friend and you can study John's Gospel together with somebody else because sometimes it's helpful to have somebody else's help. Trevor can tell you about all sorts of different ways that you can take these things forwards. But I just want to leave you with that challenge. We believe that Jesus is the greatest news in the world because he is the God who comes, stoops, serves, suffers, bleeds, and even dies for you. Is that the God that you could believe in? I'll leave it there, and then uh, maybe we can have some questions in a minute. Thanks. Thank you, Mike.